everybody, my name's Colin Ellis, author of Culture Fix, Culture Hacks, and The Hybrid Handbook. On the Culture Makers podcast, I ask leaders from around the world to share a little bit of their story and what works well for them in the world of workplace culture. I hope you enjoy today's show. everybody this week's culture makers podcast is actually a replay a replay from 2019 pre-pandemic with Didier Elzingi the founder and CEO of Culture Amp now Culture Amp is a an employee listening platform uh, which Didier talks about in the podcast. Now, when I originally interviewed uh, Didier uh, in 2019, they had 2,000 customers. They've now got 4,500 customers and are valued at over $2 billion. A lot of what Didier talks about in the podcast is still relevant now. He talks about the upsides and the downsides of culture and the fact that, you know, culture still makes its way into the media, something that I talked about on a recent Culture and Coffee podcast. He also talks about the, 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 the kind of key problem that we have with culture is helping people people to want to do it you know and I've talked a lot about the fact that there's lots of uh, well-meaning people out there that just really don't know where to get started and of course he talks about the fact that culture has no finish line cultures don't change they evolve over time so it's critically important when you are actually working on your culture that you're in it for the long term and you make sure you're doing something every month to incrementally get better at this thing called culture. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this replay of my podcast with Didier Elzinger from Culture Amp. Welcome to today's Culture Makers podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by Didier Elzinger, who's the CEO of Culture Amp. Thank you, Colin. Glad to be here. Awesome. We're in we're in Melbourne, and how, how many how many offices do you have now? Didier? Uh, we have four. So here in Melbourne, yeah. San Francisco, New York, and London. London, all the big, all the nice cities, all the expensive <laughs> cities. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, you don't think you could pick four more expensive cities than that? I could add Tokyo, and then I'd have, have all, <laughs> all in good time. Uh, so, just a little bit about you. If that's okay to start with, so from because we, we met, it must be about nine months ago now when I was mm. uh, doing the research for Culture Fix. Computer scientists by training, yes, by training, and then originally worked on some big movies. From what yes, I remember, yeah. yeah, spent the first uh, first part of my career in film, working on Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Batman, Superman, all of those sorts of things. All of the good things, mm. all the good things. But really, had a, an interest in people throughout that, or did, did, did that kind of evolve? Did he? How did that work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of what I learned in film and what drove me and what led to me starting Coltramp was uh, how do we apply what were then new ideas in how to help people work together. So early agile, what became or is sort of lean and a lot of those ideas, not the waste reduction part of lean, but more of the philosophical part of that. Um, cross-functional teams, teams of teams, all of those sorts of ideas were things that we were forced to work out how to use because we were working on these insane films with insane deadlines. <laughs> so it very much evolved. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was a... I mean, partly I was drawn to them anyway because they just seemed to make sense. But there was a very real need too, which was that, you know, we would have to spin up from something with nothing to having hundreds of people working on, on Harry Potter, for example, mm. and, and trying to deliver a, a large amount of work in a short period of time. Yeah. 
And then from there, on to, did you go from there to EY? The connection point there is that um, three years before I left uh, Rising Sun to start Coltramp, I went through the EY Entrepreneur of the Year program. That's so right. Rising Sun Pitches, myself and, and three, the three founders of Rising Sun, won our category for what we were doing at Rising Sun. So I went to the Nationals for the judging and met Mike and Scott from Atlassian. And so that was part of the thing that started making me think, hey, I think a software business model is a better business model. Mm. And then uh, as a nice little round trip, Trip, uh, a few weeks ago uh, actually won the disruptor category nationally so for the culture amp one here in Victoria and then and then one nationally and uh, lost out for the overall to Lex Greensill who's uh, built an amazing business Great. Um, so he won the whole thing so that was a nice little round trip and so culture amp was launched what year um, that's actually it's a somewhat vague number <laughs> there's I created a PTY LTD uh, in 2009 when I was stepping out of Rising Sun. But Coltramp as we know it today and in its, in its current incarnation and form really started in 2011. And the reasons behind wanting to create what is essentially a, 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 an organization that collects information on culture, what was what was the driving force behind that? Yeah, so the collecting information became a necessary means. The The motivation for it was, you know, I used to joke as a CEO, you're a glorified psychiatrist. And so it was this intense interest in it to begin with and a belief that's, you know, only got stronger with time that people and culture is the biggest lever that you have. Like if you're trying to build a successful company, I'm talking to the converted preacher, the converted, yeah? but you know, th- this, this matters and it's important. And I remember as I was s- stepping out of RSP to start Coltram, one of the reasons that made me think, hey, I want to build software in this space is I looked around and I wasn't that impressed with what I saw, not because the companies weren't building good software, but I think that, well, actually I did think they were building bad software. <laughs> But it was also the demands of the time. What was happening was that everybody was kind of going, okay, let's take all of our horrible paper processes and move them to the cloud. And so all of the work was going into just taking something and making it work in the cloud, not is this process actually an effective process or could we do this in a different way? Mm. That's what motivated me. I'm going to come back to some of that stuff in a minute, but I'm, I'm just keen mm. to, to uh, just talk about the Culture Amp story. So over 2,000 customers worldwide, I think mm-hmm. I'm, I read yeah. on the website. Uh, 2,600 and counting. Fabulous. And so as a business, um, it's kind of one of those interesting stories where you're a people and culture business. You're serving, you're helping your customers get better at people and culture, but obviously you've got to have a focus on your own mm. people and culture culture too, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for brand salience, if nothing else, but, <laughs> but also that actually is what drives me. I mean, the, I want to build something at scale. Part of the reason I, I stopped working for Hollywood is I didn't feel that I could make enough dents in the universe running a, a service business for Hollywood. I thought that if I was building a global software company that was helping companies in some way, I would be able to make more of a change in the world. The change in the world that drives me is to create a better world of work. That's our mission a culture amp. But the legacy that I want to leave is not just to help customers to solve that problem, but also to be a culture first company ourselves, to be proud of what we built at scale. And I think there's, you know, there's sometimes an undercurrent that 
you you just need to win. You just need to win at all costs. Yeah. And I you know firmly reject that and believe that you want to focus on winning, but you want to win a certain way. And your allegiance to that way is what culture first means. It continually surprises me when organisations don't think that way and they do have a, a win at all cost mentality. Are you seeing a change at all? Certainly in the conversations that you have with with CEOs, that actually there is more of a commitment to work on culture. I think we're seeing. So the short answer is yes. Um, as to what's driving it, I think there is, there has always been a focus on culture for a subset of leaders. You know, I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding that people think that CEOs and, and senior leaders don't care about culture. I used to talk to rooms of CEOs 15 years ago, and I would ask them out of 10 to rate how important their people and culture was. And the average answer was 11. <laughs> so there was a lot of Spinal Tap fans. Um, but I think what's probably changed is what that means. So, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, people knew that culture was important, but they were probably more focused on creating a culture of winners and a culture of, you know, get it all done, accountability, superstar, A player type stuff. And I think what we're seeing now is that that understanding of what culture is, is becoming more nuanced and taking in a wider set of ideas. And so you only have to look at diversity and inclusion and what we're dealing with around mental well-being and all of these things where leaders are now going, oh, okay, culture is actually not only... Um, why I'm going to succeed, but also something that I have to constantly work to get better at. And I think, roughly speaking, you, you divide people into two camps. One camp are people that believe it, want to make it happen, and that's the thing that drives them. The other camp don't want to get fired and don't want to suddenly get outed. And so I think that's also been a big change. And you would hope to think that so much of what we're seeing is because people, you know, all these people are pushing on culture, and it's true, but probably the big shift has been that people have realised that actually culture will kill you if you get it wrong. That's right. And we're seeing you know, royal commission after royal commission. We're seeing all this stuff where people are like, ah, culture actually matters, not just on the upside but on the downside too. Yeah, kind of ironic, I know, but in, in publicising the new book and doing some PR around it, there's literally been a story on culture every Every day, and I, you know, I brazenly said to to, to people representing me, it's like, oh, if you have a story on culture, just let me know. I'll do some commentary. It's literally every day, and normally it's bad, right? That's mm. the stuff that we see that's bad. And I think there's the, the opportunity is for for organisations to start doing good and putting those stories out in the world as well. Yeah, and I think the the challenge maybe is that organisations that are doing Invercomms good are the ones that realise that there's no finish line and part of doing good recognises that there is no perfect culture. Yeah. And so you can run around telling people that you're amazing but you're probably not and it's more to do with all the things that you're willing to struggle with and willing to talk about and willing to engage in that isn't always the thing you want to talk about on the front page. <laughs> yeah, no, not necessarily. Uh, so a big part of how we measure cultures within our organisation, within organisations, is obviously we do a, a bit of a pulse check and the engagement service. Survey. You know, and, and, and the organisations that I used to work at back in the day, we were very good at collecting information but not doing very much with it. Mm. And I know that's something that you're passionate about through Culture Amp and obviously personally as well is how do we take this information and turn it into something meaningful? And I think there's, I mean, there's several pieces to it. So there's still a lot of work to be done to help people collect that data. <laughs> 
and whether it's through surveys, whether it's through passive means, I think people have been saying surveys are dead for a long time. I think they'll probably live longer than a lot of people think because there's an actual honesty in asking someone a question. Uh, you know, yes, we can go mine your email and try and work that out. A lot of the privacy things are going to make that harder and harder. And so there's an honesty in just directly asking people. So one part of the thing we focus on is just how do we make that easier? How do we make it easier and easier for organizations to collect the data that they need to make better decisions? But as you just said, the real challenge is what do we do with it? And so we we sort of divide that into two problems. One is how do we help you make sense of the data? Um, to sort of paraphrase Dita Rams, we don't need more data, we need better data. And so how do we help people set things up right, ask the right questions, um, analyze those results and sort of train your attention to the things that matter and the things you can do something about? And then the hardest thing of all, once we know that, once we say, okay, this is probably where you're going to get the biggest return on investment if you spend your time, not just what do you do, but how do you do it and how do we support you in that process? Because I think what we're realizing, not just at the organizational level, but even individual level, knowledge itself is not enough. We actually have to guide people on that journey and we have to design systems that support them in being human. And so essentially what you're saying there, it's about listening throughout the, the, I guess, across or across the organization throughout the life cycle of, of that employee journey? It's about listening through the life cycle of the journey, but then it's also taking whatever insights we get and then delivering those insights back to people, not just as a, all right, we've identified you need to do X, but instead guiding them to that and then helping them make decisions. Should I do this? Why should I do this? What are the choices that I have? Am I really committed to this? Uh, you know, we're seeing so much interesting work being done. You know, nudging is massively overhyped. Mm. But the core idea is there are more effective ways of getting people to change behavior than turning up with 20 pages of facts. <laughs> and that's really the thing that we're sitting down engaging in, which is we know what to do. That's not the problem. Right. The problem is helping people want to do it and then equipping with them with the tools to do it and then supporting them reinforce that behavior. Because we get, you know, in, within culture, we get a lot of people who try and copy other people's models, right? Mm. They'll go on a, an expensive Scandinavian field trip, which I love talking about in my speeches uh, and they come back and they say oh we saw this over here so that's what we're going to do mm. and actually the data tells them something quite different mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I mean there there's and this is what we were just talking before about people running around telling stories of what works people read these stories but then they don't always see the stuff behind it there's a great um, Buddhist phrase don't mistake the finger for the moon and so we're often missing why they did that and there's a famous story about uh, Toyota when they first really started being successful and so some of the GM and Ford and so on would send their people over to look at the factory and they would replicate the factory perfectly trying to create something that was as efficient as the Toyota system but they weren't seeing why they created the factory that way and the thing that went behind it. So you can replicate that as much as you like. It's not going to give you the results if you don't bring the philosophy and the, the ideas behind it. Because it was much, Toyota was much more about how do we create an environment where great work flourishes. Yeah, and if, yeah. You, if you see interviews with Taichi Ono, who was the chairman, and he says the two most important things in the TPS, the Toyota production system, are not waste reduction, not flow, not all these other things that we talk about. They are continuous improvement, 
Kaizen and respect for people. And it's the last one that everybody forgets. That's right. And so a lot of the US took all those lean ideas and turned them into Six Sigma. And respect for people was not built into that. <laughs> <laughs> now, a lot when we, we talk about respect, I talk a lot about emotional intelligence as well and creating a connection. One of the things that I notice here at Cult Tramp in the Melbourne office, and even here when we're sat in this, uh, we're sat in a little meeting room here, there's a big screen on the wall. And as we're talking, there, there, there's pictures of employees from around the world just cycling through. That's just one way that you create connection. And so I guess I'm interested in, in in how you maintain connection, how you maintain relationships between all of these people in global locations. Because often people will say, oh, well, how, how do we how do we define a culture and then maintain it across around the world? So I'm interested in how culture do it. Yeah, and it, it's hard. Like it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work. So the thing that you're talking about is a little app um, that one of our team actually built is a hacker program called um, Facewall. And so it pulls information from people's Slack profiles and then just rotates through them so that you can see all these people. And we have specific questions that we get people to fill in, like talk to me about, I want to learn, thank me by. And so we're trying to, oh, there I'm up on the screen. There we go. Um, And then we also added in the gender pronouns too, which was a way of leaning into something that was very important to a portion of not only the people of Coltramp, but also the wider community. And so a way of um, being an ally to that. And so that's one thing. One of the other very little things we did, which I was actually skeptical about but it has been fantastic is um, we use a, a an app or a piece of software called Donut AI so it's a Slack bot and it's essentially a channel called Camper Coffee and when you enter the channel every two weeks it randomly pairs you with someone and then the company will pay for you to have coffee or whatever and the idea is that you just meet someone and chat about anything you feel like chatting about and it's a way of creating connections and a lot of these will happen cross office so you'll get paired with someone in the New York office so you find a time that works and you might be having coffee because it's 6am and they might be having wine because it's 8pm <laughs> and you just have half an, hour, half an hour talking and the only ask is that you share a photo of the two of you or like a screenshot um, and a little summary of what you talked about to the channel and so it serves these two purposes that you're connecting people throughout the organisation but also I learned so much just reading other people's um, you know things yes yeah. it's, it's you know it's fantastic to see this oh I didn't realise those two people were both into motorbikes <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> so it's sort of serendipity, if you will. Sure. And then the last thing is um, actually intentionality. So I often get asked when people join, you know, what's a piece of advice to make me successful at Coltrane? And my usual answer to that question is the thing you need to remember is that even if you're in Melbourne, where we have the most people, more than half the company is not where you are. And so you, in the long run, your ability to be successful at Coltramp will depend on your ability to create relationships with people that are in another place. And that will take effort and friction, but it's worth worth the time. And one of the things you do, and, and Coltramp are one of those organizations that give so much back to, I guess, the culture community. You know, I, there are books, there are e-books, there are blogs that I've read that Coltramp put out. And they're just fabulous for people like me that run programs to say, okay, well, here's a new bit of thinking. You have a lot of data. You run a culture culture first conference. Is that what it's called? Is that an opportunity for you to bring employees together? Do you use kind of, is it two pronged? Do you try and bring everyone together at some stage? Uh, it's funny you say that. So that's our big event series, uh, and a lot of people at Culture Amp are involved in the various different ones. Uh, it's unfortunately not economic for us to bring everybody to Culture First Global, and so it's always actually a challenge of you know, who's going to be at Culture First Global and who's, <laughs> who's going to be keeping the lights on. We actually did earlier in the year bring everyone to Australia for a week, um, which was a big event and was a really important part of us. Um, 
setting the scene and getting everyone together. We also learned a lot from that. So it was it was incredible. It was um, inspiring. Uh, it was also quite overwhelming and revealed a whole bunch of things that we have to think further about in terms of how we would run that type of event. Because you know, we have a very wide range of people at Coltramp and there's some people that love that environment and there's some people for which that's their worst nightmare. Yeah. And so it's one of those things that the bigger you get, and I think about this from a diversity and inclusion point of view too, the further you go, the more you realise how much there is to do. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually never stops changing, never stops evolving, never stops moving. No, there is no finish line. That's right. And so uh, one of the things that you talk about at Culture Ramp is a sense of belonging. Mm. And so is it something that you and your teams continually think about is, well, what's something new that we can make sure that we continue to evolve the sense of belonging? Yeah, I think it's actually even not deeper, but it's more complex than that for us. So we do actually talk about it and we look at that and we track it with our own tool and, and we discuss it all the time. And then the truth of it is there are always going to be people in the organisation for which for whom they don't really feel like they belong. And it could be that the organisation is not set up to meet their needs. It should be, but it's not. Uh, it could be that that part of the organisation is not quite working. One of the lenses that I often use is when we talk about culture, we often think of it as being one thing, which of course it's not. Everyone has a different experience. It's the sort of amalgam of those experiences. And so I like to think of it on two lenses, which is, or two axes. When it is good, how good is it? And then, however good it is, how uh, accessible is that experience to the bulk of the people in the company? And so at any time, you kind of want to focus on one or the other. Some organizations, even when it's good, it's really not that good. And so you actually need to get a peak culture that is the way you want it to be. Uh, at CultureAmp, I think we have an incredible peak culture. Like when it's working, it is phenomenal and it's an incredible place. But it's not accessible to everyone in the organization. And so then we have to focus on that and go, well, why is that? Is that because we're structurally not set up right? Is that because we have some sort of bias built into the system? Um, is it just a problem that we haven't figured out how to tackle or solve? And as you get bigger, you have to accommodate a wider range of needs and, and ideas. And so that's something we, we look at a lot. And one of the things that I learned off the back of our culture camp as when we were discussing this and discussing why it was just an amazing experience for some people and an awful experience for some others, that if we truly want to allow people to belong, we also have to allow them to not belong. We have to give people the choice to not always think that they have to belong. We've kind of, in some ways, belonging's amazing and so powerful and there's a whole bunch of research to show that it, it almost is engagement too. They're so highly correlated. But we've pathologized it like being happy. You know, you should bring your whole self to work all the time and you should always belong. And that's just not possible. And so having a more open and honest conversation about we want to be a place where you can belong, where there's nothing that stops you from belonging, but we also want to allow you to do that on your own terms. And we want you to go, I belong when I want to belong, but I can choose to not belong too in certain circumstances. It's a hard road. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard road, but, but you're on it and you're, you're doing lots of good stuff, not only here in the office, which I see, but also putting uh, stuff out in the world. Didier, thanks so much for joining me on the Culture Makers podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the link with colleagues and friends or your connections on social media. 
Better still, why not keep the conversation going and join our community of culture makers for free to share information from around the world on how to create a great place to work. You can join us at www.culturemakers.community.